Have you ever taken on a task that you suspected would be challenging only to figure out that it was actually impossible? You simply did not have the knowledge or the strength or the tools to pull it off? I can think of scores of examples from my own painful experiences with dead file servers in the middle of the night and misbegotten auto repairs and counseling sessions that went nowhere and arguments with teenage kids that blew up in my face. But the reality is that none of those failed, frustrated efforts even comes close to the absolute and utter failure of men that God had to fix in order to bring us to Himself. No other limitation or weakness among men provides an adequate analogy for our absolute inability to fix the problem of our sin. If the history of Israel and Judah tells us anything about people, even those people to whom God has made Himself most known, it's that we cannot simply choose to stop sinning and to start living righteously. We can't simply choose to stop loving self and to start loving God. We are no more able to fix the problem that separates us from God than was Joshua the high priest earlier in this book in chapter 3. The only thing that he and we have to bring into the presence of God can't be in the presence of God. It's our filth. It is the uncleanness that belongs to us because of our sin. Only God can fix what's wrong. And that's what this chapter is about. It's about God doing what men cannot do. Making His people return to Him. The passage starts with a, uh, a promise. God's promise to bless every man who comes to Him for blessing. The image that's presented in verse 1 to represent all kinds of blessing, all the blessing that comes from the hand of God is His provision of the spring rains that bring forth vegetation. In an agricultural economy, rain is like air. <laughs> you, you cannot do without it. And of course, it's the same for us. How long can you do without water? There can be no physical well-being. There can be no crops. There can be no water for people or for their herds and flocks without rain. God says to His people, every man of you who desires rain, let him come to Me. Let him ask Me, and I will give it. And He says, ask the one who makes the storm clouds. Now if there's only one person in the universe who actually controls the weather, if there's only one who can actually turn rainstorms on and off, where else could you go to ask for rain? The point of this first verse is simple, but it's, it's very profound, and it affects every aspect of every one of our lives every day. If you desire blessing rather than curse, and you should, there's only one place for you to go to find that blessing. And that's to the one who is the one and only source of either blessing or curse. And that's God. He's it. There's no other place to go. If you go anywhere else for blessing, you won't find it. 
You can do rain dances 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But if God doesn't provide the rain, you'll dance until you die of thirst. And by the way, if you're one of those who insists that it's ungodly to seek blessing from God because the only thing we're supposed to be concerned about is the glory of God, I have to strongly disagree with you. Because not only are those two pursuits not mutually exclusive, they are inseparable in the Bible. When you come to God for blessing, that glorifies God. The notion that blessing for God's people is just some kind of a byproduct of seeking the glory of God and it's never really supposed to be on our radar screen is just plain crazy if you take the time to look at the hundreds of commands in the Bible, the hundreds of times in the Bible where God commands His people to seek blessing from Him. Just like in this passage. Just like in verse 1. To seek provision and security and pleasure and fullness of joy and community and fellowship with God and with God's people. He commands us to seek all of those things from Him. God loves to bless. You shouldn't feel guilty because you want to be blessed. You should feel guilty if you're looking for blessing in the wrong place. When you do that, whether you feel guilty about it or not, you are going to be disappointed. If you go anywhere else in the pursuit of blessing, you'll get what Judah and Israel got when they looked in all the wrong places. The next two verses are about God's anger toward the leaders of His people. Actually, toward the misleaders of His people. Verse 2 says, For the household gods utter nonsense. And the word for household gods here is the Hebrew word teraphim. Some of your translations just put that word in there. They transliterate it. It's the same word that showed up repeatedly in Genesis 31 when Jacob's wife, Rachel, stole the household idols from her dad, Laban, when Jacob and Rachel and Leah and their family left to go down to Palestine. These were little portable idols small enough to fit undetected in Rachel's saddlebag when Laban came looking for them later. These little idols were apparently used for divination. And divination is when you attempt to obtain allegedly divine information from some source. Information that's going to be good and reliable because it's supernatural in, in origin. So you, you would use these little idols somehow, maybe roll them down on the floor and they'd take a particular shape and like tarot cards, and, and it would tell you supposedly something that you needed to know, like, is it going to rain tomorrow? Or are we actually going to be carried away into captivity? God's declaration here is that those little idols speak nonsense. And it's not a benign, harmless kind of nonsense. The word for nonsense shows up in numerous passages with meanings that range from wickedness to trouble to just plain emptiness and vanity. Here, it's talking about bad counsel that leads to a bad outcome. God is declaring that Judah's household idols speak only that which brings about really bad things for those who consult them. Now, this isn't an admission <laughs> that the teraphim were real gods who could actually talk. It's simply a declaration that the outcome of consulting these pathetic little God substitutes will always be trouble with a capital T. 
The whole idea of making little portable idols that you can keep in your house and consult with was messed up then and it's messed up now. Philip Johnson was at our discussion about the message this week and he really got my attention with a comment that he made about this this point to this part of the passage. He pointed out that we have a modern version of household idols that we can conjure up in seconds with just a few mouse clicks. We don't even have to get up out of our chairs to get really, really bad counsel or to be enticed into grievous, destructive sin. We can do it at our desk. We can do it from our laptop. See, if idols are bad news, convenient idols are really bad news. As verse 2 continues, we see that the Judahites had plenty of other sources of falsehood at their disposal as well. It says that the, the soothsayers, the diviners, see lies. That's a great thing to see. Lies. And the dreamers tell false dreams and give vain, empty, useless consolation. See, God's people had embraced all the same fraudulent sources of information and wisdom that the pagan nations loved to consult. Every single one of them. There are plenty of examples in the Bible, in the Old Testament, of how this actually played out for Israel and Judah. But I'll give you just one example that should have been well known to Zechariah's audience. In Jeremiah 28, a false prophet named Hananiah told the king, Zedekiah, the king of Judah and Jerusalem, that God was going to break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar within a mere two years. And that when he did, all those who had already been exiled to Babylon would get to come back to Jerusalem. And with them, they would bring all the treasure from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had extorted from from Jerusalem in, in the first round of exiles. And of course, King Zedekiah and the people of Jerusalem, they thought that was lovely. That was wonderful. That was just what they wanted to hear. We can get, we can get by for two years. And then everything will be back the way it was. But see, the problem was Hananiah was lying. He was lying through his teeth. He knew that God had not told him any such thing. He was a false prophet. So God gave Hananiah a message through his true prophet, Jeremiah. God told Hananiah that because he had misled God's own people, Hananiah was going to die by God's hand within that year. And it didn't take that long. Two months later, Hananiah was dead. In the very next chapter, Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah sent a letter to the exiles who had already been carted off to Babylon. Elders, the priests, the prophets, and the people from Jerusalem who had already been taken into captivity. Here's just a portion of that letter. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 11. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The reason you're there, guys, is because I sent you there. And then he says, build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. And then a little later in that verse, he says, multiply there and do not decrease. And this is great. And seek the welfare of that city where I've sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. 
And the word welfare is shalom. It's peace. It's pervasive well-being. God says, pray for the well-being of that city because in its well-being is your well-being. In its peace is your peace. And then he says, for thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares Yahweh. For thus says Yahweh, when, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, then I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Literally, to make you return to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for well-being and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. If the Judahites in Babylon had trusted in and obeyed those words, the time in Babylon would have been a time of blessing from the hand of God even in the midst of their captivity. That's what God promised. And if those who had been left behind in Jerusalem, the poorest of the poor that Nebuchadnezzar didn't think were of any consequence, if those who were left behind in Jerusalem had heeded and obeyed these words, they could have stayed in Jerusalem. And their provider and protector would be God through Nebuchadnezzar. But they didn't like what God had to say. They set aside the counsel of God and they sought for themselves little toy idols and prophets and diviners and dreamers who would tell them what? What they wanted to hear. And what did they get for all that? <laughs> well, all those still in Jerusalem who had been spared from the first round of captivity, you know what they got to experience? They got to endure the worst siege of any city that's recorded in the Old Testament. The year and a half siege of Jerusalem, it was brutal. It was relentless. It ended up with cannibalism going on inside the city walls because there was every source of food and every source of water was cut off for 18 months. It was horrible. King Zedekiah, when the city was besieged and when the walls were finally breached, he found a little hole in one of the walls, one of the walls at the back of the city and he tried to get out and the army of Nebuchadnezzar captured him and here's what he got for listening to the false prophets. He got to watch his sons be slaughtered right before his eyes. And that was the last thing he saw because right after that, the army of Nebuchadnezzar gouged his eyes out. That's what he got and that's what Jerusalem got for listening to those that were no gods at all. And the residents in the city that remained got taken away into captivity in the worst way. There were only a couple of other cities that were still intact before that siege. None of them was intact after it. One of those cities was Lachish. And there are, there are carvings on pottery from the city of Lachish that show the Judahites being carted off. I've talked about this before. They're being carted off. Not, they weren't just escorted from Jerusalem to Babylon. They were carried off with hooks pierced under their jaws, suspended by ropes from long poles. And they were alive. That's what they got for listening to those who were no gods. See, the counsel they got from their bad shepherds was bad counsel. You can count on that. 
They were like sheep without a shepherd, not because nobody was leading them, but because their leaders did not represent God. God's anger was kindled, verse 3, against the shepherds. And then it says he resolved to punish the leaders. And the word for leaders is he goats. It's used several times in the Old Testament, mostly disparagingly of leaders. See, goats are smarter than sheep, but they make lousy shepherds. And here's something you can bank on. If you set aside God's counsel and replace it with any other counsel, what you'll end up with is bad counsel. Not just bad, lethal. You'll end up with counsel that moves you from the path of life to the path of death. And once you're on that path, it's like that cattle shoot I showed you a long time ago. You're on it and all you can see is what's in front of your nose and you just keep going until you get to the point of slaughter. When you reject the truth of God, what you get is inherently a lie. When you reject the truth of God, what you get is inherently a lie because truth only comes from one source and that's God. Romans 1, verses 21-25, to even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of what? Corruptible man. And birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged, get this, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. And then Paul says, Amen. You want to know the shortcut to a failed life full of disappointment? It's very simple. Set aside God's revelation of Himself and make yourself the arbiter, the judge of what's true. That'll do it. Profess to be wise with a wisdom that comes from anywhere other than God and you will be a fool and a failure. You'll look around some and then you'll pick whatever brand of lie tickles your ears the best. And that's what you'll believe. Because men who are not servants of God are servants of self. If you won't submit to the truth that's true, you'll go after the lie that you like. That's what Israel did. That's what Judah did. And that's what you'll do. Under the leadership of generations of lousy shepherds, Judah had become like shepherdless sheep, wandering aimlessly, looking for wisdom and provision and protection where they, where they could not be found. God declares in the first half of verse 3 that He's going to punish the false shepherds, the misleaders of His people. But God is not going to leave His people without a shepherd. He will not leave His people in a vacuum of leadership. God Himself will lead His people. And that's what He talks about in the second half of verse 3 through verse 5. Now some see these verses as God's promise to replace Judah's bad human leaders with good human leaders. (laughs) But that's not the focus here. God's declaration in these verses is that He will be the true shepherd and the faithful leader of His people. He will do what men will not. 
The first sentence of this passage, for Yahweh of hosts cares for His flock. Literally, that has visited His flock. The house of Judah and will make them like His majestic steed in battle. And in that first sentence, who's the shepherd? Who's caring for His flock? His sheep. God is. He will make them like His own mighty steed in battle. The good shepherd is God. The phrase from Him in verse 4 is emphatic and it occurs four times. It's right at the beginning of each clause. The pronoun is explicit. If you don't care about linguistics, don't worry about that. But the pronoun is explicit. From Him. From Him. From Him. From Him. Four times. Now some translations that you've got will say from them because they're picking up on the previous verse and the next verse and they're saying Judah is the subject. But I don't think that's what's going on here because every other time in this passage that either Judah or Ephraim are mentioned, they're, called, they're mentioned in the plural, which is actually kind of unusual. There are many passages that speak of Judah, Israel, in the singular. But here, it's always plural except in verse 4. And in verse 4, it's singular. From Him. And there's a reason for that. I'm going to show you my translation of that verse. This is just woodenly literal. no Nothing fancy. This is, if you take the Hebrew words and line them up, this is what you get. From Him, the cornerstone. You have to supply the is. From Him, the peg. From Him, the bow of battle. And then the verb is only actually in the last clause. From Him will go out every oppressive ruler, all of them together. And I'll explain why I do it that way. First, the cornerstone. From Him will be the the cornerstone. The reference to the cornerstone has a lot of history behind it. Many of you are familiar with some of the passages. Psalm 118, God says, it starts by saying, Give thanks to Yahweh for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. And it says, It is better to take refuge in Him, in Yahweh, than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in Him than in princes. And then, Verse 21 says, I shall give thanks to thee for thou hast answered me. Thou hast become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Isaiah also talked about the cornerstone. In Isaiah 28, one of the instances, and by the way, this would have been familiar to Zechariah's audience because Isaiah was one of the fairly recent prophets in their history. It says, Isaiah 28, verses 14 to 16. Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh and get this, O scoffers who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. For we have made falsehood our refuge and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Can you imagine bragging about that? God is being very sarcastic here. He's indicting the leaders, the rulers in Judah. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, because, because you guys have blown it so badly, because you have misled my people and clung to falsehood and deception, therefore I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes will not be moved. That's the phrase that Paul quotes in Romans 10. He who believes will not be disappointed. And it's so cool. In Isaiah, 
the word for the word for not be disappointed, not be moved. It's talking about you're standing in a place that is so secure that no matter what happens, you're not going to move from it. You're not going to be in a hurry to go elsewhere. That's a that's a great picture of what this is talking about. See, Judah had trusted in ungodly rulers who had chosen falsehood and deception over the word of God. But God is the one who's going to fix that. He was going to bring in His own cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, and all who trust in that firmly placed stone will not be moved. 1 Peter chapter 2 declares both of those passages, both of those cornerstone references, Psalm 118 and Isaiah 28, to be talking about Jesus Christ. From Him will come the cornerstone. From Him will come the peg. Now the peg in verse 4 could refer to a tent peg that's driven into the ground to anchor the ropes that hold up a tent. But the more recent usage of that word for this audience would again be from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 22. That passage is talking about a thick nail or spike that's driven into an upright tent pole or into the wall of a house to hold stuff. You might put your weapons, suspend certain weapons from it or certain valuables from it. In Isaiah 22, God declared that a wicked man who was then acting as the chief steward over the king's house, a guy named Shebna, was going to be replaced by a man of God's own choosing, another guy named Hilkiah, excuse me, named Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. Once God declares that, then he speaks of this man, Eliakim, in terms that predict Messiah. That happens a lot, by the way. Isaiah 22, verses 22 to 24, get this. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. And I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. And he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house. See the image? Now how do I know that passage is pointing forward to Jesus, the Messiah? If you've got your Bible, open it to Revelation chapter 3. It's the kind of stuff that excites me. Revelation 3, verses 7 and 8. Now I'm just going to read the first part of that Isaiah reference again. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. Revelation 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Who's that talking about? Who is the one who has the key there? It's Jesus Christ. The passage back in Isaiah that indicates that Eliakim will serve as the peg of God, it then says later that that peg's going to fall down. But there's one that's coming that won't. There's one who is coming who will be like a peg in a firm place and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house and they will hang upon him all the glory of his father's house. That's the peg to whom God is referring in Zechariah 10 verse 4. From Yahweh will come the cornerstone. From Yahweh will come the peg. Those are both talking about the same person who will be sent from God. And from Yahweh will come the bow of battle. By the way, there's just a 
There's, you can see a little representation of those two verses with the, the common parts highlighted. All right. Um, from him will come the bow of battle. Now, we've already seen in Zechariah 9 that God's going to make his people the implement of his decisive victory. He talked about making Judah his bow and Ephraim his arrow. Making them as a sword. We talked about the idea when we looked at Zechariah 9 that God is our might. He is our power to fight His battles even now. And the battles are of a different kind. They're spiritual. They're against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Against the world forces of this darkness. The last from Him clause in verse 4 is... A longer one. From him will go out every ruler, all of them together. And the word for ruler that's used here isn't the word for king that you'd normally find. It comes from the verb to oppress. And it refers throughout the Old Testament to tyrannical and oppressive rulers and even to slave drivers. I agree with Merrill Unger that this appears to be a reference to the evil rulers that God's going to eradicate from his land and cast out. It will be by His hand that every bad shepherd will be removed. Verse 5 switches back to the plural. Again, talking about Judah. They, as the people of God. And it picks up the imagery again from chapter 9 of God's people as His powerful and victorious army. An army that is led in battle by Yahweh Himself. He's the leader. It says, they shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. It's interesting reference, by the way, the mire of the streets, the same phrase was used of tire. It said that they had so much silver that it was like the mire of the streets. They shall trample down the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because Yahweh is with them. Why shall they fight? How shall they fight? Because Yahweh is with them. And they shall put to shame the riders on horses. Now how would this flock of aimless sheep (laughs) become transformed to be like mighty men in battle trampling down their foes in the mud of the streets? How would they put to shame the cavalrymen of their enemy armies? Would it be because God would give them better horses than the enemy had? Would it be because God would make Judah's men suddenly bigger and stronger and faster and more accurate with their arrows than any of the enemy soldiers? God could do all those things if He wanted to, but is that how God does things? How was it that Israel defeated the army of Pharaoh and walked out of Egypt with the spoils of battle, the treasures of Egypt, a thousand years earlier? How was it that the Israelites made their way across the Red Sea? Was it because they were all such great swimmers? All the way down to the infants? Did the walls of Jericho fall down because Israel's siege works were so formidable? Did Gideon defeat an army as numerous as the the grains of sand on the seashore with an army of 300 men because his soldiers were just thousands of times better than theirs? Did David defeat Goliath by his great physical might and brilliant military strategy? Did Elisha shut down the entire Syrian army and escort them single-handedly to their enemy, the king of Israel, because he 
of His great powers of persuasion. You see a pattern here? Why is that important? In 2 Corinthians 2, when God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh to humble him, Paul beseeched God three times to remove it. Paul discovered that God was disinclined to acquiesce to his request. You have seen Pirates of the Caribbean, right? Anyway, God said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Whose power and whose weakness? Well, God answers that. Paul answers it. He says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. See, my weakness is the platform for the display of God's power. Your weakness is the platform for the display of God's power. That's how God does things. He uses weak, ill-equipped men to win battles. He uses foolish, inarticulate, even fearful men and women to win souls. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, I quoted this last week. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Don't ever believe that God can't use you because of you. Don't ever believe that God can't use you because of you. See, that, that smells like humility, but it's actually self-exaltation and it's an insult to God. Because if it were true, it would make your weakness greater than God's strength. And that's never going to happen. God will lead His people. He alone is our sufficiency. He alone is our true shepherd, our provider, our commander, our strength, our protector, our enabler, our adequacy for all the battles to which He calls us in this life. He's it. There is no other and we don't need any other. God will lead His people and God will bring His people back to Himself. In verse 6 and again in verse 10, God says, I will bring them back. And the word to bring back here is the causal form of the word we've seen over and over in this book. The word to return. It's also the word that's translated over and over in the Old Testament as repent. Both times in this chapter, the phrase, I will bring them back, literally means I will cause them to return. God's saying, I'll make them return. Now I hope by now that you'll immediately recognize the importance of that statement in the context of this book. What have we seen is the central exhortation of the book of Zechariah. Zechariah 1 verse 3, Return to me that I may return to you. That's the exhortation. But you see, God cannot and will not come back to dwell in the midst of His people until His people have come back to Him in faith and obedience, in holiness. Here in verses 6 and 7, God is telling us explicitly what will cause His people to turn back to Him. What will change their hearts toward Him? See, their return to Yahweh will not be initiated by them. It will be caused and initiated and finished by Him. He's the author and perfecter of faith. In Ezekiel 36, when God declared that He was going to, same thing He does, He's talking about here, He's going to gather His people from all the nations, He's going to bring them back. 
He's going to sprinkle clean water on them. He's going to remove their filthiness from them and He's going to take all their idols away. Then it says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And get this, I will put My Spirit within you and I will, I will cause you to walk in My statutes and to obey all My ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be My people and I will be your God. Beloved, if our repentance is our work, it's only as reliable and durable as our promises to God and as our resolve to keep those promises. And if you're anything like me, that's no guarantee of anything. Praise God that our situation is not that. Our repentance was and is His work. Our faith is His work. Our obedience is His work. Ezekiel says, I will cause you to walk in My statutes. I will cause you to be careful to observe My ordinances. Our obedience is His work. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. How do I live? How do I walk? How do I obey? By faith in Him because He's the one who does it all. God doesn't just turn our hearts away from lies and deception and wickedness. He turns our hearts to Him when He redeems us. The wording here is very personal. He says, I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they will be as though I had not rejected them. Go back and look at Hosea about God reject God divorcing His people. But then He, he brings them back. He says, I will make those who were not My people My people. It will be as though I had not rejected them. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts will rejoice in Yahweh. It's all about that relationship that the people will finally have in holiness before God in the midst, God dwelling in their midst with no barrier of sin. God's going to put all that aside. It will be the undoing of the curse once and for all. God will bring His people back to Himself and God will bring His people back to His land. Verses 6 and 7, the focus was on God making His people return to Him. Verses 8 through 12 is God making His people return to His place. (laughs) We've seen that over and over. His people and His place. The last five verses are filled with the imagery of the first Exodus back in Exodus. (laughs) Right? God back then delivered His people out of bondage in Egypt and brought them into the promise to bring them into the promised land. That took some time because of their disobedience. In verse 8 here, it says, God will whistle or signal to Israel and Judah and will gather them together. They will be as numerous as they were before. He's looking back. He says, though they had been scattered by God among the peoples, God will cause them to remember Him in those far countries. And they with their children will live and come back. This picture of God's people becoming numerous in some faraway land and God bringing them out of that land along with their children to come back to the land He promised to Abraham. Clearly, That clearly harkens back to the first exodus nearly a thousand years ago. A thousand years earlier. And in case Zechariah's audience missed that illusion, God says in verse 10, I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. Those are both very interesting because 
The only Judahites left in Egypt at that point was a very tiny contingent after God had judged Egypt because Judahites went to Egypt for protection instead of going to Him and obeying Him. That's a long story, but read Jeremiah 43 and 44. It'll tell you the whole deal. But there's this tiny group of, very tiny group of refugees left in Egypt. God says they will return out of the land of Egypt to Judah. He says that in Jeremiah 44. I believe the point of verse 10, and by, by the way, Assyria, what makes that interesting is that Assyria was the captivity of the northern tribes. And what happened to the northern tribes? Did they get turned, did they get, they get released by a king to come back to the land? No. They're called the ten lost tribes of Israel, but guess what? They're not lost to God. I believe the point of verse 10 is simply this. No matter where the people of Israel and Judah might be found on the face of the earth, including Egypt, including Assyria, God is going to make them return to His land. The second half of verse 10 talks about the destination of that return. He says, And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them. Now those are interesting choices too because Gilead was east of the Jordan. And Lebanon was way up in the northwest extreme of the land. I believe God mentions those two outlying regions of the land in order to make the point that every bit of the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be theirs once again. Verses 11 and 12 present a picture of a decisive and one-sided victory by God against Egypt and Assyria. And verse 11 continues the Exodus imagery. Look at this. Yahweh will pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea. And all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. The scepter is the emblem of royal rule, of dominion. It will depart. I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in His name, declares the Lord. See, just as when God subdued the waves of the Red Sea in Exodus 14 so that Israel could pass through on dry, dry ground with God Himself going before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, just as when God dried up the Jordan River in Joshua 3 so His people could cross over into the land of promise, so again, God's warrior king will go before His redeemed people to bring them out of all the lands of their exile and into His land, to His place, Nothing will stand in His way. He will make them return to His land so that He may dwell with them in their midst. And beloved, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you're a child of Abraham by faith in the promise of God, you're included in that regathering. And you're going to be there in His place with His redeemed people, with Him in in the midst of all of us. That's the new Jerusalem. That's the new heavens and the new earth. Just as the Garden of Eden was the place in which the first two people that God created got to enjoy relationship and fellowship with Him and with each other, so it will be in the new Jerusalem. The point of the place is the presence of the person. God will make His people return to Him. He will make His people return to His land. He will be our God and we will be His people and He will dwell in our midst forever. At the cross of Jesus Christ, God fixed what we could never fix. And by the way, I'm going to just take 
one minute to read something that blows my mind. It should blow yours too. Isaiah 19. He's going to judge Egypt and Assyria. He's going to remove the dominion from Egypt, but He's not going to be finished with them at that point. Isaiah 19. After it says Judah will become a terror to Egypt, <laughs> and Egypt will be judged, verse 19 says, in that day there will be an altar to, to the Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to Yahweh near its border. And it will become a sign and a witness to Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt for they will cry to Yahweh because of oppressors and He will send them a Savior and a champion and He will deliver them. Who? Egypt. Thus the Lord will make Himself known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing, so that they will return to the Lord. The same wording. And He will heal them. And get this. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be a third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands. And Israel, my inheritance. In Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. At the cross, Jesus fixed what we could never fix. The holy and righteous Son of God took the full weight of our sin upon Himself and He died in our place fully satisfying God's anger against us because of our sin. And then God raised Jesus from the dead and He's coming back to lay claim to His people and to His place and to live with us in that place forever. Everything that was required to ensure that outcome, God already did at the cross. And every detail of all that He has promised to His people will be fulfilled by Him. Not by us. By Him. If you're here today and you're still depending on anything at all that you bring to the table, if you're depending on anything at all that comes from you, either to make yourself right with God or to make yourself wise or to make yourself successful or to make yourself anything of value, God is calling you to give it up and to cling to Him. To believe in Him alone. He is the only source of well-being. There is no other. Dear Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who is depending on lies and deception and falsehood, who is depending on self or on anything or anyone else other than You for that which is life indeed, that they would, they would turn away from those things and turn to You. And Father, I pray that that would happen because You are at work in their hearts. That's the only way it takes place. Lord, You are in the process still of making a people for Your own possession zealous for good deeds. Use us. Use those of us who belong to You now to expand that kingdom. To draw others in. And we'll get to watch, Lord, as we proclaim Your message. We'll get to watch as You make people return to you. There's nothing better to witness in this life than that. We give all the praise and all the glory to Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.